I'm Tess Vigland, and as we work, we're learning how to recover when we face plant on the job. It's worth owning up to your mistakes. It gets people on your side, and it gave me at least an opportunity to even become closer with other people who might have had similar experiences. I definitely kind of beat myself down about it, but I learned to just kind of keep it moving and thankfully didn't make mistakes twice. The basis of a lot of creativity is mistakes. You relish them. This is As We Work from the Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. That was Alex Mikolov, Penelope Reed Cleary, and Stephen Ringgold. We spoke with them on the streets of New York City. Success. It's what we hope for, strive for, but mistakes and failure are part and parcel of our working lives. Who here has never had something go epically wrong at work? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? I thought so. Failing at some point in your career arc is almost inevitable. What matters more is how you deal with it and how you grow from the experience without feeling like a failure. So today we're talking failure and fear and how to learn from both as you move through your work life. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The sentiment is on billboards, posters, coasters, cocktail napkins, probably. Failure is human. We all do it. It is perfectly normal. But it certainly does not feel like that when it happens to you. In that moment, it can feel like you'll never get past this thing, that it will haunt you the rest of your life, the rest of your career, even though in the vast majority of cases, it won't. Thomas Edison purportedly said of all his inventions that did not change the world, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. That is what I would call pro-level reframing. And yes, sometimes it's our way of thinking about failure that's all wrong. We're going to talk about that today with Min Jin Lee. She's a widely hailed author. Her first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, came out to critical acclaim. Ten years later, her second novel, Pachinko, was published and was a finalist for the National Book Award. It's now been turned into an Apple TV series. Lee emigrated to the U.S. from South Korea at age seven, and just a few years later got into one of the top high schools in New York City. She went to Yale and then got into law school, Georgetown. Pretty impressive, actually. Doesn't read like a failure. But with that path came a lot of expectations, a lot of chances to get things wrong. The fear of failure was real, and it still follows her to this day. It's a constant presence in her life and in the lives of her characters. Here's the thing, though. She says that's okay. Min Jin Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, um, but I'm very curious. Uh, am I wrong to say failure is something you've thought a lot about? 
Well, I think failure is my middle name at this point. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I didn't have to think about it too often, but hey, you know, it keeps it real. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, how does that play out for you? How does failure factor into your life? Well, I think my problem is that I really want too much. Mm. So because I want too much and I want things in the way I want them, in my own absurd standards, of course I fail them consistently. (laughs) 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 And that's okay. I've sort of made peace with the fact that it's coming. Well, I want to take you back a little bit before your second novel, Pachinko, became a bestseller. Now, of course, a TV series. You were an attorney. Was that a longtime career goal for you? No, no. It was just one of these things that I sort of fell into it. So I majored in history, and then I was able to get into law school by accident. I kind of applied to three on a lark because (laughs) I didn't know what to do with my life. I did fine in my LSAT scores, and I got into Georgetown Law School, which is a very good law school. And I thought, oh, no, I would much rather write or be an editor at a publishing house. Hmm. And then I got into this Radcliffe publishing program. And I remember telling my dad, hey, I got into this publishing program. And he said to me, so what do editors make? And I said, well, starting editors, I think they make something like $18,000 a year. And he said, wow. <laughs> he was, wow, not in a good way? <laughs> it was wow and not in a good way. And he said, well, how are you going to feel when all of your classmates are living so much better than you? And it was such a classic sort of bizarrely effective logic for me thinking, oh, yeah, it's going to be really difficult to be poor. And I grew up pretty working class and then middle class at best. So I remember thinking, oh, well, I guess the whole point of this fancy Ivy League education is that I'm supposed to do better. So I went to law school. And then after I graduated, I practiced for a little less than two years. And then I had to quit because I couldn't work those hours or just too punitive on my body. So that, that's why you decided to leave the, the hours? Yeah, because I was a very good little grunt. So it wasn't like I was a lawyer. I was more like a very high-priced clerk hmm. and a research assistant. That's really what I was. So what brings you then to fiction writing after the law? Well, I wanted to write fiction more than anything. And I guess what's really more fair to say is I loved reading fiction more than anything. Hmm. And because I read so much, I thought it couldn't be that hard to write a novel. And boy, was that stupid. Famous last words. Yeah. yeah. So right, wait, we go right back to where we started, a failure. <laughs> so I just jumped into the ocean of failure of writing fiction. And it took me a really long time to publish my first book. It took me, I think, 11 years to sell my first book. Yeah, so it's not like you left one career and, and, and the next was an instant success. Um No. What were some of your feelings during that time before your debut novel, Free Food for Millionaires, came out in 2007? I felt so ashamed. Mm. Like, I felt so ashamed at not having succeeded. And then people are very kind. They're trying to be interested in you. So they'll say stuff like, oh, what do you do? And you and I would tell them the truth. I'm working on a novel. And they would say, oh, that's so sweet. Where can I buy it? And I would say, you can't <laughs> because I haven't published it yet. And then, of course, I had been racking up so many rejections. So there was nothing to prove to say, oh, yes, my dreams were on the right track. Yeah. I think that's what's really hard is that when you're 
doing anything, anything at all, and you have a big dream, you want signposts and maps. And I did not have either for a very long time. You have spoken repeatedly uh, about how long it took to get your first book published and then to write your second book. And along with that, you've talked about, you know, this idea of failing as a fiction writer for a long time. Um, But I, I think the tendency, especially once someone becomes successful, is to then kind of reframe the past as, you know, first attempts rather, rather than failures. But you use the word failure. Why? Because it's true. Mm. I think that I don't want to be a Pollyanna about it. And I think that, yes, I believe there's some meaning in my suffering. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time when I was going through it, it just felt so awful. It could have turned out very, very badly the way I published these two books, if I published them at all. And the fact that they have worked out in some measure... I'm really gratified by it. But at a certain point, I almost gave up. I just thought, well, I'm going to write these things and finish them because I'm very, very, um, what's the best word to use? I have OCD. <laughs> so Determined. Determined. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a stickler for finishing things. Is there a, a particular time that you felt like you failed, like a, a, a really big event? I remember actually very recently, a couple of years ago, right after... I got the announcement for that being a finalist with National Book Award for my second book. And my husband had lost his job that year. So I needed to find something because our family needed health insurance. So a friend of mine got me an interview for a place to teach. Hmm. And I would have taken anything to have health insurance. And I walked in and the person was incredibly unkind. It was a very, very short interview. And she said to me, how did you get to my desk? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. It was really one of those moments. Jeez. I know. <laughs> but, you know, at that time, I didn't blame her for being unkind. I just felt like, oh, I really screwed this up because here I am in a situation where I had been dependent on my husband for health insurance. And I walked out of that interview and I just sobbed on the street. Mm. Because I thought, oh, here I am. I'm 48 years old. I need health insurance. I've had very serious illnesses in my life. I'm perfectly fine now. Glad to hear it. So that was a really difficult moment. And I remember telling my younger sister, hey, you know, maybe I can get my real estate broker's license because Mm. I really have to figure this out. So then what are some of the things that you remember doing to help you through some of those dark moments. You know, you you clearly got through a lot of obstacles, of money, time, battling these feelings of shame and failure. What brought you through that? Well, I have love in my life. Mm. I have the love of my family. I'm so close to my family. I have very dear friends. And it's really nice to know that they're not going to dump me even though even though I didn't measure up to whatever my absurd standards. And it does give you a lot of strength. Yeah. Were there any practical steps that you took along that route um, to kind of get yourself to a point where you were more comfortable with, with where you were? I took a lot of very inexpensive classes in New York City at community centers. Hmm. 
and classes that cost like $200 a semester. And I did a lot of those types of things that were not very prestigious. And very often I was the youngest person compared to a room full of retirees. Oh, interesting. And it was a really great experience because in a way they were so much more gentle with me than a bunch of hotshot young writers. (laughs) Because when I would meet these hotshot young writers, it was very status ranking all the time. Whereas when I was with a lot of retirees who just loved reading and writing and they were working on things and I was working on things and we had all spent about $200 going to the Y to take a class. I had this sort of permissive communal atmosphere in which I can learn and look stupid for a while. Because, I mean, there's no other way to make art except to look stupid for a long time. Mm. Well, I want to talk about how failure plays out in your writing. Both Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko have opening lines that I think reveal a lot of deep thinking about failure. Let's start with your first novel. What do you mean by competence can be a curse? Oh, that's a thesis statement of Free Food for Millionaires. And... I was really trying to say that sometimes when you're good enough at most things, you don't know what you're supposed to do. Mm. So I was critiquing this idea of a person who can pretty much generally pick up things and then not know who she is herself. I mean, how many times does the average young girl get asked, well, who are you and what do you want to do and what would be good for you and what would be good for the world if you actually pursued it? And very few people had ever asked me those Mm. questions. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take on competence because I am a very competent person, except for technology and driving. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I'm pretty competent. (laughs) That's okay. You can skip those two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when you think about that phrase, competence can be a curse, it, it, it also, like the flip side of that is allowing yourself to be a failure at some things, right? Sure, sure. But then if you can lean into your competence, very often you won't experience enough failure. Oh. In a way, it can also make you really arrogant, hmm. thinking that you're somehow impervious to the slights of the world. And that would be a kind of a shame because... I've met people who've had things pretty easy in in life, and they can be kind of hard. And I think that's kind of a shame. What about the first line of Pachinko, which is, history has failed us, but no matter? I was arguing that history has failed every ordinary person in the entire world since the beginning of time. Because for the most part, history is a record of winners or catastrophic losers. Mm but they're not about regular people who have to function. But the subordinate clause of that sentence is very important to me because in my research, what I have learned is that ordinary people don't care. They just keep going and they try to survive and make the best of things. And it's very empowering to think of that way because if you are waiting around for recognition that you're somehow important enough to be recorded and that never happens to you, Mm. does that mean that your life didn't matter? Of course not. It's almost a statement of defiance. It's absolutely defiant. I'm a very defiant person. I just don't seem like it. 
So you're working on a third novel now, American Hagwan. Can I ask whether the first line of that one is is also about failure? Do you know yet? Do, do you write the first line first? Oh, I'll tell you what the first line is. I probably shouldn't, but I will. And it's the rules of engagement have changed already. Oh, the rules of engagement have changed already. And where is that going to take us? It's about some young people who open a hagwon, a private tutoring center, and it becomes very powerful in the world. Mm. I'm writing about the value of education for Koreans around the world, but I'm really asking the question, what is wisdom? And I'm positing that the rules of engagement have changed already. How? I think we are living in a time where things are moving so quickly the constructs and the theories and our context are changing so quickly that human beings could barely catch up. Hmm. And we are living in an age of anxiety. I think you could argue that that fits into your theme of failure because as as things move more quickly, it's much more easy to make a mistake. Or perhaps you've already failed already. Or perhaps you've already failed already. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are now a best-selling author. Your novel, Pachinko, has been turned into a TV series. Do you feel like you can call yourself a success now? Do you do you feel like a success? So am I a success? I think that I've achieved some of the goals that I've set. And I feel fortunate that I get to do what I think I want to do. Mm. I get to write more books. I'm really grateful for the readership that I have. But do I think of myself as a success not really, it's not, but I don't think of myself as a failure either. Hmm. But I think that it's absolutely true that I have failed and it's absolutely true that in some measures I've succeeded. I guess what I'm really trying to say is I don't really like the metrics of the world. I think we have it all wrong. As a matter of fact, we have it so wrong that I swallowed some of these standards and then I made myself feel terrible. And I don't want that for my students. I don't want that for my friends and the people that I care about. Well, Minjin Lee, it's been an absolute delight talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, thank you for hanging out with me. I like that. Thank you for hanging out. We've been hanging out. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to agree with Min and say I don't really like the metrics of the world either. Do you? How would you change how we see our successes and failures? Email us at asweWork at WSJ.com. In a moment, some lessons from the world of sports. There are winners, yes, but there are also a lot of athletes who fall short. And how they think could help us reframe our idea of what failure means in the context of work. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
wouldn't it be nice if we could just tell failure to be gone from our lives and careers? Well, Jonathan Fader says that's impossible because it's part of who we are. Fader is a performance specialist and clinical psychologist who does a lot of work with athletes, CEOs, and a lot of other people. He helps them succeed, but also, let's be frank here, not every athlete wins the gold medal. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Tess. So people make mistakes all the time, big, small, and I think we know in our heads that it is okay to fail, but we're still largely really afraid of it. Why are we so afraid of failure? You know, what's the first thing that we, we hear from our parents? No, 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 no. Like, don't no, touch that. Don't, yeah. no, 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 no. I mean, you know, so, huh. um, and and they should, because we touch hot stoves and we step into streets. Right. We, we realize we have this negative bias as humans. We learned by avoiding harm. Our minds are predisposed, Tess, to look out for what's wrong. Wow. I go talk to an audience. I find the person who's on their phone out of a thousand people instantly. Right, right. right. Oh, I can relate to that. Yeah. We're not going to look around the audience and say, oh, there are 999 people engaged here. Right. So we're, we're protecting ourselves. The reason that you know mistakes are so important is because our ancestors had to anticipate them. Hmm. Um, because they used to be life or death. And so, you know, failure now means like we don't get a raise, but failure used to mean that we die. That actually kind of makes me feel a little better about it because it seems like it's it's basically involuntary. It's in my DNA. Absolutely. It, it is reassuring, right? To just know this isn't me. Right. This is humans. So let's take this to the workplace. It's, it's cliche, but a lot of people have had, you know, that stress dream about showing up for work in your underwear, right? So yeah. um, what what makes fear of failure on the job so anxiety provoking? What, what makes us so scared of even small mistakes on the job? I have the luxury and honor, um, an opportunity to speak to elite performers in different contexts, sports teams, uh, firefighters. You know, one of the things that, that I notice in all these groups is that no matter how tough these folks are, no matter what stage they play on, they're all like the rest of us afraid of one thing, the judgment of other humans. Mm. If we take risks and they don't work out, then other people might judge us, might might in some way deem us as not worthy of being part of this group, whether that's having a job or being part of a team or being in a social group. And so most of us really need a lot of help to break free from that threat mentality. How do you think we should define failure? You know, it's a great question because I actually, I very much believe that the stories we tell ourselves and the words that we use for things um, change how we perceive things. I, I don't talk to people about failure. I mean, what I, what I usually focus on is, is unwanted results. An unwanted result is that you, you take a risk and you didn't get the result that you want. And the reason is because people don't do accurate assessments of their process. If they have unwanted results, they think that they failed. But maybe they haven't really been determined, did I have a good process or not? Sometimes we can have an excellent process and have poor results. And sometimes we have a poor process and have great results. I wonder if also it's a matter of reframing what we thought the results should be. So Carol Dweck, who's, who's famous for coming up with this concept of growth mindset, it came out of research where people would always tell their kids, you're so good at math. You're, you know, you're, you're fantastic at drawing. You're an excellent piano player. And what her research showed was that actually that's not really helpful. And the reason is because when people have this concept of themselves, I'm just really great at this, and they're, they're reinforced for just being good at something, a lot of times what happens is that they decide 
not to challenge themselves. And the reason that they don't challenge themselves is because they may be proven wrong at, at what their self-concept is. And so a lot of reframing is to be able to, as, as in, in what she calls the growth mindset, is when you have stress or, or unwanted results, that you teach yourself around looking at those, uh, those as, as really challenges and opportunities rather than threat. So I feel like when we think about the arc of a career, there is so much fear about those big failures, including something as seemingly unchangeable as choosing the wrong career path, right? But so many people choose something, it doesn't work out, they go on to bigger and better things. Um, we've talked with novelist Min Jin Lee, who was a lawyer before she published you know, this hugely popular book, Pachinko. So we all know these stories, right? And yet, so many of us are still scared of failing. What's behind that? Are we just thinking that these are one-offs and it's not going to be me? We're terrible at predicting future opportunities and outcomes. We think we're good at it, but we really just don't know. And so one of the things I work with artists and athletes all the time is you don't know what's around the corner. There's a bad side that cuts to that, but there's also a good side as well. But I also wonder if part of it is what you were talking about before, which is that, you know, finding that person in the audience who's not paying attention to you and focusing on that and fe feeling like you're a failure because of that and and how we we constantly over-identify with our mistakes, I think. I think those loom so much larger in our lives than successes do. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I, and I, and I actually think, Tess, you know, your point about there's more of a landing pad for negative information. Yeah. It's confirmatory of, of, a, of a worry that we tell ourselves. Like, it's like we've been hearing this ghost story at night, every night for our whole lives. And then all of a sudden we have this failure and it's like, it fits into that. Mm -hmm. Whereas success doesn't, you know, I, Michael Kadire, who um, was a outfielder for the Mets, who I really respect a lot and worked with when I was, you know, with the New York Mets, when we went to the world series, one of the things that he always used to say is and remind players, which I really think speaks to this, he would say, don't be surprised by your success. If a major league baseball player has to be reminded of that, then we all do have to be reminded of that. All right. So let's get really practical about this. And, you know, let's practice this. Uh, I'm at a new job. I want to speak in a meeting, but I'm scared stiff that I'm going to say something stupid. I am petrified of what would really be a very small failure. Uh, what do I do? So the first thing to think about is human beings at rest breathe about six breaths per minute, about 10 seconds per inhale and exhalation. Of course, right now I'm actually counting seconds as I breathe to, to yeah, make sure it's okay. But that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. And if you're breathing in a way that's helpful, you're usually breathing using your abdomen. When you're feeling tense and stressed, you tend to breathe faster, shallower, and using your chest, right? So just being able to, to learn very simple breath work, breathing through your nose and just taking breaths counting in for between four to six seconds and counting out between four to four to six seconds. Just doing that around the time that you're feeling um, that kind of activation is really, really, really helpful. Okay. So that all sounds great, but let's say I mess it up anyway. Um, so I, I get a client's project wrong in front of the boss. I look like a fool. I feel like a fool. Maybe the client is annoyed. Uh, how do I recover from that? We have two cognitive errors that we have about ourselves. One is we jump to conclusions. 
And the other thing is we blow things out of proportion. Every human on the planet does these two things. And so the response to those two things are, number one, I encourage people to examine the evidence. And the way you do that is you ask yourself, what is the evidence contrary to my thought? And if I can't do it myself, I need to reach out to someone who's an objective observer. And the second step is, even if what I think is true, maybe I did mess up the presentation. Then the next question is, am I blowing this out of proportion? And my view is that those those are a training ground to make me better. And so if you have the attitude that you can't move past it, I think it's really about shifting and saying, what can I learn from this experience? So even the most terrible, heartbreaking things can be transformed. Jonathan Fader, thank you. Oh, Tess, it's such a pleasure. Coming up, is it time to have the talk? You know, the one with your boss, the one where you ask for Dun, dun, dun! A raise? We'll have some tips for how to get what you want without passing out from anxiety. Or is that just me? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And finally today, our pro tip, Ray Smith of our Life and Work team is back with some advice. If you're feeling like it's time to ask for a little something, something in your paycheck, or maybe a lot, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. Let's start with the lay of the land right now. Uh, We've got inflation that is eating away at our buying power. How are companies looking at that in terms of preparing for employees to be requesting a bump in their paychecks? Are they factoring in these inflation woes at all in their planning? We found, according to a survey from Mercer, that a lot of companies are not factoring in current inflation. They're basically basing their pay on what normal inflation would be, you know, on a yearly basis rather than what it what is trending. They don't want to get into a position of starting to make these pay raises based on current inflation, and then things turn, and they can't revoke those raises. They're overpaying people. But at the same time, it is a workers' market out there, right? Lots of employees feeling like, you know, there's this tight job market that could make for some solid bargaining power. Exactly. You hit it right on the head, test, And that's the dilemma for employees and employers. A lot of employees feel like the ball is in their court, and they have the power to ask for raises, ask for more money. And if they don't get what they want, they think they can get it elsewhere. All right. What are a couple of the main ways to make a case for yourself? Besides, you know, going into the boss and saying, hey, I want more money. (laughs) Definitely don't do that. One of the things that is the best pieces of advice that I've gotten from experts on this, pay negotiating experts, is really simple. It's really prove why you deserve it. And it's basically coming to your employer with your achievements and your accomplishments and giving specific examples of things you achieved and accomplished and how they went above and beyond. And you really have to make it a singular pitch. 
it even helps to sort of practice what you're going to say hmm. um, with friends or family members beforehand because you're really delivering, you know, a presentation. How much haggling should you be prepared for? Um, is, is it kind of like when you get a job offer and you might have, you know, two or three back and forths before settling on a figure? You should be prepared for some haggling and you are probably going to want to arm yourself with statistics, basically pay statistics, comparable pay. And so you should go in prepared to have a number that you've researched. You should also expect, if you throw out a high number, the company probably is going to say no. So you should come with a number that is even higher than you think is realistic. You want to go with a high enough number so that you have something that you will be happy with that they think they're getting you down, but you're like, okay, that's really actually better than I expected. Okay, Ray Smith, uh, how about we go spread this advice on asking for a raise around the halls here at the Journal? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it, Tess. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Tess. So a raise isn't the only thing people negotiate for on the job. Sometimes you want something else. And most of the time, it's not easy because we are terrible negotiators. Yes, I said we. So next week, we're bringing on negotiation expert Barry Nailbuff, who's designed a new way of thinking about all kinds of negotiations for money, for remote work, for time off, all the things. And he's taking your questions about some of your thorniest negotiations in waiting. Now, before we go, we asked you all for your best piece of career advice. Here's one from Stephen Kristoff from New York City. When you're going into these job interviews, do all of the research and ask all of the questions. If you walk into these interviews and negotiations with assumptions that you never end up confirming, you will lose every time because the old adage is true that closed mouths don't get fed. We'll be sharing more of your advice throughout this season, so keep them coming. Email us at aswework@wsj.com and let us know or leave us a voicemail at 212-416-2394. Any messages you leave may be used in the podcast. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is the birthday girl. And our producer, Amanda Llewellyn, is our development producer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tess Vigland. See you next time. <laughs>